Ross Ulbricht is serving a double life sentence without parole for all nonviolent charges for creating a website. Please help free this peaceful man. Go to freeross.org and sign and share the petition. So it's little wonder that smart shoppers everywhere take time out to pause and refresh. And where else but in the fountain where they serve ice-cold Coca-Cola? Militia Podcast, Episode 33, Hoplite Armor, Lyman Bishop for Governor. Enjoy. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have another awesome guest episode coming at you today. Joining us uh, for this episode, we have Mr. Lyman Bishop, the CEO of Hoplite Armor, uh, defier of bootlickers, and he's now running for governor of Montana uh, on a two-way absolutist platform. So, um, as you know from our brand, uh, mixing with this brand, it's we're, we're probably going to have a lot of converse, interesting conversations, but also um, going to have a lot of common, a lot of things in common. But uh, Mr. Bishop, why don't you give us your background and what got you into doing what you're doing now uh, with with body armor and everything? brought you into the scene um and and first let me say i I like the term that you're using uh two-way absolutist i'd really never heard of that term but i think it's pretty accurate oh uh yeah absolutely everything i've seen from you uh it's all hardline stuff which is what we love around here (laughs) well you know very much so i mean just logical adherence to the law of the land which is in fact the constitution of course right of course not that it's uh paid much heed these days Right. And, and that is a big problem. And that's a big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. But, you know, going back 15 years is when I first got into the armor industry. So my background is in mechanical engineering and um, I've done a lot with new product design and development. Um, back in 2003, I first got interested in body armor by way of a DARPA project by the name of... Um, uh, human performance augmentation. Uh, oh, was this the future soldier stuff? Uh, it was the precursor to that. Yes, it was. Oh, okay. uh, and wow. Again, and I left something out, a key portion of that uh, title is exoskeletons for human performance augmentation. And awesome. that just got me very interested in the idea of enhancing a soldier's uh, survivability and endurance in particular, uh, certainly adding to their lethality. And what I began with was a complete head-to-toe armor system that I designed. Way ahead of its time and way too early to try to bring something like that to market. And I recognized that pretty quick just because uh, the armor industry in particular tends to adhere to the the tried and true, that which is known and understood. And um, Contracts you can sell. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, and contracts that, you know, people want to put out and things they want to buy. Yeah. 
you know, certainly generated a lot of attention just by way of the fact that it was uh, so different than anything that had ever been developed. So uh, at least in the real world, I'm picturing like a like an Iron Man suit. Is kind of what you're talking about. Well, yeah, you know, um, it's like Master Chief. Minus armor. the computers and, and the iron, I suppose, right? You know, I mean, the <laughs> materials we use are polymer. Okay. Uh, but uh, you know, essentially, that's you, you've got the right idea, right? You know, an, an exoskeletal armor system. You know, shin plates. Er, er, ergonomic. And... That's right. Was this Just a project like, you took on by yourself? Uh, originally, you your company. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, obviously, it was not my full-time enterprise. Uh, I've got other business interests, but this is an area where I felt that I could contribute. It's pretty so, cool hobby. Um, so, so did you did you already have like manufacturing infrastructures in place, and just something that you felt to like exploring, or is this something like that dro- drove you to start doing the manufacturing? Well, and just to be clear, I, I never have, nor will I ever probably manufacture anything myself. I, I design things. Okay, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. You know, I use 3D CAD design programs, and I utilize my understanding of existing uh, materials and manufacturing processes in order to design systems that will function. Gotcha. Very good. Uh, that's where it started. Um, over the course of several years I, I made contacts within the industry and typically the industry is very closed if you're not uh, retired military or police you will typically have a difficult time getting into the industry uh, that's not always the case but by and large that, that is so and um, I think the one thing that I brought to the table that really kind of helped me push my way through the door was the fact that I was doing things that nobody else was doing. And that's really still the case. There's very little in the way of design going into, you know, new and unusual products within the armor industry. You know, most of what you see out there is just sappy plates or swimmer plates based on existing military specification geometry. So, um, and you, your I, company was the first company I ever saw shoulder plates with. Yeah, I was about to say. Or any plate that wasn't well just your standard front and back chest plates, basically. I thought so, too. But early on, I did see, I think it was Cry Precision put something out. But it really it looked almost more like a, um, it rode up really high on the shoulder. It was more of like a collarbone protection is really what it looked like. But I think it was intended to be more. I don't know what they made these things out of or what level they were. I'm quite certain they were not rifle rated. Mm-hmm. And to that end, I would say that uh, to the best of my knowledge, I am the only one that has ever designed any sort of hard armor rifle rated solution to protect the deltoid, right? Uh, in particular, with regards to lateral impacts, that's uh, a big issue uh, when you're right. fighting in close quarters, um, taking shots from... Uh, different angles is certainly uh, a big liability. Yeah, that's that's what put you on my radar way back when. Because I've always been kind of kind of a gear nerd. I enjoy you know things that are different and that, that stand out. And hoplite, uh, just years ago, I saw you guys you know coming out with the shoulder plates. I was like, wow, you know, you just don't see stuff like that. It's something oddly not considered. You'd think all these people, like you said, are uh, you know veterans coming back and getting into the industry, but then they just do the same thing everyone else is doing, despite yeah, surely having experiences from uh, like the sappy the uh, shoulder plates, 
Um, I think I read something on your uh, about your products that kind of intended for uh, like high angle shots, you know, because there's a lot at risk uh, going into the shoulder. And um, you'd think these people would have experience with those kind of wounds and think, you know, this is something that needs to happen. And uh, and yet there's just so little on the market uh, with that kind of innovative yeah. idea. And it's you, not you really. But I can tell you some stories that help you understand why that's not the case, right? Um, you, you've got an outfit called Army Natick Labs that is um, a, a civilian laboratory, a civilian-run military laboratory, I guess I should say. And um, as is the case with a lot of organizations, there tends to be a lot of what you might call inbreeding, in a sense, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and, and what I mean by that is... Uh, projects that are developed internally tend to be favored over anything developed externally, regardless of uh, the performance or uh, capability of said design. So what you're seeing happen with the military is they took a project that was started by some people that worked at Army Natick Labs, and, and that's what they funded. That's what they put their, their big push behind. And so what they've done is they've gotten rid of what used to be referred to as the DAPs or the the Delta, deltoid auxiliary protection system. And they've integrated that now into what they call the combat shirt. So you've got these Kevlar uh, inserts essentially built into the shirt. Um, and, and that's great. It's an improvement over what they had. But in the end, uh, they are lacking severely in the sense that they are incapable of stopping anything greater than a nine millimeter. And in many cases, the um, high speed fragmentation uh, from an IED alone would, would certainly penetrate that and cause damage. Uh, I was told early on by a uh, retired colonel that used to work in the Pentagon, save the joint, save the limb. And, and so that's always been the goal, right? If we can save the joint, the shoulder joint, uh, we can save the limb. And, and just to give you an example, recently, um, and I don't recall if I pulled it from Instagram, I think I might have, but there was a photo I posted of a guy that got hit in the shoulder with a 308. I remember that. Uh, yeah. 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 Around that we can easily stop with the shoulder plates, but it just decimated this guy's shoulder. There was literally nothing left um, but a big hole. And, and it was, you know, terrible to look at, but it, it drove the point home that uh, it is a vulnerability and it is an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, I actually had a friend who in 2004 was at the Battle of An-Najaf on a rooftop with some Blackwater guys. And uh, they were overrun by 800 enemy combatants. And maybe I shouldn't say overrun because they did hold them off. Uh, but during the fight, my friend took a, uh, a shot to the deltoid. And luckily, it, shot, it hit him towards the back of the deltoid. So what ended up happening was this round uh, got under his skin. And it traveled uh, behind the back plate where it sort of retained the position of the bullet. It stayed under his skin, traveled all the way through to his spine and, and stopped just short of it. Oh, Jesus. Had he been wearing a shoulder plate, it would have been an edge shot and it would have deflected, uh, but it would have prevented the injury. Yeah. And that yes. happens a lot. It's, it's a damn shame that we kind of got to the point of, oh, let's protect the vitals. And then, and then there was just wasn't anything further. It well, like, it is it is vitals too because if you get a, a perfectly loud oh, yeah, shot, it's going to go right, right to the heart through the through the arm oh. through the shoulder. So I mean, yeah, and, and if you're if you're incapacitated, you're not you're not fighting either. So good point. <laughs> and that'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'll quick. That'll kill you just as fast. 
And so, you know, as you can see, I mean, more than anything, what I'm really trying to do is to bring some innovation to an industry that, um, well, while there's been significant advancements in, in materials, uh, there's been little in the way of advancements in design. Yeah. Kind of stagnated on the innovation side rather than uh, just improving what's already out there. Right. And, and really, that's the result of the fact that there are not nearly enough mechanical engineers in the armor industry. Uh, the company that I work with, LTC, Leading Technology Composites, they are far and away uh, the world leader with regards to production, but also design and development. But most, uh, and they've got a, a whole group of engineers there at their facility, most of whom are focused on things like vehicle armor or, you know, in the event that I bring something to them to work on, okay, they, they focus on that. But, um uh, you know, they're obviously just dealing with the things that pay them and pay the company, which is by and large standard stuff. Yeah. Stuff that there's already contracts for and, you know, things that's going to keep on being on the table rather than trying to bring something new that's that right. you'd have to fight well, to get, you know. The safe road. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, um, a road paved with gold from what I can tell. I mean, they do a significant <laughs> amount of business. And, oh, you know, sure. when you're doing that kind of production and um, meeting those demands, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of, of need to develop your own unique things in that way and, and take a risk and waste time and salaries on, on different things. And I, I think that's one of the things that they appreciate about me is that I tend to bring a lot of unusual things to them for development. And um, I get a lot of help from them as a result. They're always well, it's one of those things. It's uh, it's nice that you're an independent, and you can you have the time to be able to experiment. And then when you finally drop this on the other engineers who are just doing the same boring old thing every day, they're happy to jump into a project that is a little bit different and might push the push the edges out a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And you know the higher ups um, love to give them these things because um, it, it broadens their understanding. Uh, of what's possible oh yeah that can never hurt <laughs> so um what was kind of the uh the timeline for your your company i guess so you you're working on this um proto future soldier project sorry i forget the uh the the name um exoskeletons for human performance augmentation and, and that morphed <laughs> to um body armor development just by way of the fact that i i felt like i was already um, knocking at the door, so to speak, with the things I was designing and developing, it was, um, uh, you know, a short jump to yeah. developing body armor. Um, gotcha. there, there's some unique things that go into uh, designing and engineering systems uh, around the human body. Um, you know, we refer to it as human factors engineering. And, um, of course, the geometry of the human body being what it is, um, that creates a number of challenges technically uh, that I had to overcome just in my understanding of my abilities in operating SOLIDWORKS, uh, the CAD program I use. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's understandable why you wouldn't have a lot of companies doing this sort of thing. You know, um, it took me years to develop the techniques that I've come up with to, to do these things. And that's certainly not a, a profitable position. I was lucky that I was, as you say, independent and able to focus uh, a considerable amount of time towards these things and personal resources um, 
And that's really what made it possible. It was sort of an anomaly, I think, more than anything. Mm, yeah. So uh, after the, uh, so I guess after the exoskeleton, was did you just naturally move into plates first, like regular, you know, front back savvy plates? Or? I, I wouldn't call them regular. What I did. Uh, well, is okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, well, I started there, right, with with chest, back, and shoulders. And what I tried to do initially was to develop plate solutions. Uh, for all the different segments of the body according to the geometry of that part of the body. Um, so, for instance, the chest plate, obviously, you know, very much uh, similar to what you see now, but with some extended coverage areas and, and some unique cuts to allow for better movement. Uh, the back followed the the contour of the, the spine and the shoulders, of course. Um, you know, well, you see where that ended up, but in... In the early days, we did have a considerable amount more curvature in the materials, but what we found over time was that the curvature was too great and it was causing issues with production. Mm. So I kind of had to back off of that. And, and the transition, and there's a story here if you want to hear it, right? But the transition took a, a long time, right? I mean, I started poking around with these in, things in 2003. It was closer to 2007 by the time I had... Uh, really refined everything into essentially a, a ready-for-manufacture product. But again, this was still the head-to-toe system. And um, that required a considerable amount of uh, tooling to be made. So I partnered with a company out of Ohio, and we formed a company together uh, called Star Labs. And um, uh, probably the biggest strategic error I made there was that I, I agreed to a 50-50 deal. And what that ended up doing was uh, locking us in a place where we really couldn't move forward because I had uh, one idea how to move things forward. They had another. And, um, well, you know, that led to stagnation, right? 50-50 partnerships are tough. They are. They are. And, you know, and I was in a position where I really wanted to move it forward and I really didn't want to keep spending my own money. So I thought it would be a good solution. Um, when we initially did the deal, we had a uh, a deal pending with a, a larger company to produce and, and distribute the uh, uh, the product. But that company shortly thereafter fell into some hard times financially. And, and that that's where we kind of locked up and things sat stagnant for the most part, you know, we, we always tried to, you know, dig it out of the mud from time to time, but it was, it was stuck, I would say from 2009 to, well, until Hoplite was started in 2015. And, uh, that was shortly after I relocated to Montana. And, um, one day out of the blue, um, my partners called me up and wanted to buy me out. And uh, the buyout was nowhere near the amount of money I had put into it, but I did really want to uh, design some new systems based on ideas I had, you know, in the meantime. Um, so they ended up buying me out with a condition that I could compete. As long as I didn't infringe on our existing patents, no problem. So uh, that's what we did. I, I took their check. I signed it over to them. I started Hoplite literally the next day. And... Uh, <laughs> Like the rest is history, I suppose. Slow history, but it's history. You re did you retain any like rights to royalties on your patents, or like you just that was part of the buyout? Well, there there actually is a stipulation in the agreement that in the event they sell it, I get X, or if they um, uh, there, there's various things in there where yes, I, I will get additional money. In fact, I believe that there 
selling the rights to another company now and I'll get a little money, but it's, it's, you know, not even enough to pay my bills for a month. So it's not a, a, a huge win. But something's better than nothing. I'll take it. They squandered <laughs> your ideas. It happens, you know, but listen, yep. these are the business. lessons you learn when, when you start a business and you develop a new product. It, it is uh, a path that is fraught with all manner of, of danger and distraction. And I've learned a lot from that. And, you know, case in point, when I started Hoplite, um, it was a very short period of time from the day that I started the corporation to the day that I had a ready for manufacture to design. And it took even less time to bring it into production. So I, I, I was able to apply a lot of those lessons uh, into Hoplite. And, and I credit that to a lot of my success moving forward. I guess moving on, if we're all up to date on that. Um, I want to know if you have your own exoskeleton. <laughs> That's a good. I have a, a great many things that nobody knows about. <laughs> that's, that, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. The world's largest private body armor collection. <laughs> Got like a whole uh, Tony Stark suit of armor. Just like, Probably has it sitting expect. on mannequins. I just keep thinking right. of aliens. Hey, Tony Stark. Yeah, I was just, all I can think is Tony Stark right now. <laughs> all right, take Tony Stark, take all his assets, divide it by like a thousand, and put him in Montana, and that's me. There you go. Do you, do you only are you only developing defensive um, gears, or do you, uh, are you <laughs> repulses? Well, so check this out. I, I've actually done some pretty cool stuff in the past. One of the things that was all right. I mean, it was cool. It looked cooler than it than it really was. But it that's was what's not, important. Yeah, I mean, that's all that matters. It was an electronic flashbang grenade substitute. <laughs> so this thing had a aluminum, you know, shell round like a baseball. And you'd push a button and it would screech real loud and it would flash with big, bright, you know, Cree LEDs. And, you know, that's fine and neat, but, uh, you know, it never really amounted to much. We brought an investor in there. Here's another lesson learned. right? We brought in an investor and he put in a certain amount of money, but then he began to put that money into the areas that we didn't all necessarily agree with. We ended up where we needed more money. He was happy to put it in but he wanted more shares so uh we all sort of decided we'll just walk away from this thing and leave him with not a whole lot and that's really where it ended up uh we got some money from the guy in the end um to let him just go and do it but um it, it really never amounted to much yeah but it was fun to work on nonetheless so you know i can't complain and i learned a lot uh, but one thing that, that i put together that is actually very cool um and i did this for or do you remember that show, Sons of Guns? Yes. Crazy yeah. guy, I think he's in prison now or something. Yeah. <laughs> but on one of their shows, they had put together um, basically a, um, a rocket launcher. Okay. And they were using model rockets and putting them inside a tube and firing them out of it, you know, loading them up with God knows what gunpowder, whatever, shooting them out of this thing. The problem was the tube had, let's say, an inside diameter of three inches, and, and maybe their tail fins matched, but the nose cone was, you know, a one and a half inch diameter. So what happened? It sat in the tube cockeyed. Well, when they fired it, half the time the thing would corkscrew out or come back at them. I, it was, you know, it was a mess, but I could see potential. So I, I designed a rocket uh, specifically to be shot from a tube. Uh, so essentially what I did was make a nose cone 
that had the same diameter as the uh, tail fins. And in this way, it would sit inside the tube level, it would come out straight, and it would do its job. Now, you know, as a result of various federal laws about putting explosives in <laughs> rockets, I'll tell, you, well, I'll tell you, I never blew one up, certainly not. <laughs> Um, but not. I will also not. tell you that this Never. thing I made, and I, there's actually a video I could send you uh, <laughs> that my friend took when we tested it out in the desert of Nevada. And he sat down range about 300 yards. There was no explosives in it. <laughs> okay. uh, he was 300 yards downrange. I pointed this thing straight at him. We had a slight cross breeze, so I knew that it wouldn't hit him. And I launched this thing in his direction, and he got it on video. And not only was the uh, accuracy ridiculous, um, I mean, it landed right exactly where I put the thing. Um, had that thing been loaded up with, you know, gunpowder and flechettes, it, it would have made a mess of, you know, a crowd of people right there if that's what you wanted to do. So Sounds like uh, it would have made a mess of your friend. Well, <laughs> yes, right. Uh, that's why it was inert, certainly. I'm sure he had uh, a, a few beers bought for him afterwards. <laughs> I, I think I recall something along those lines. And, uh, <laughs> but that was really cool. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, offensive uh, devices, we'll call them, um, that, that was one of the, the funner things I've worked on. Um, you know, again, legal disclaimer, never blew one up, but um, uh, I have word that a gentleman in Kentucky did, but <laughs> no there. Uh, that, that's his own devices. Um <laughs> Right. I take no responsibility for other people's actions, but uh, and, and but I understand it. Nor was... should you. <laughs> well, that's very true. <laughs> Civilian-owned rocket launch is coming soon, people. No. <laughs> so here's the deal with that and why you got to be real careful. You know, so kids, <laughs> don't try this at home. The rules of engagement, as I understand it, even on U.S. soil, is you know anybody seen with a rocket launcher is to be shot on sight, right? Oh. So definitely not oh. something you want to play around with. Uh, even if it is just a model rocket, I think it could be easily uh, confused as something more. So something to be mindful of. No potato guns, kiddos. No potatoes. There's guns. a group on Keybase who could use your expertise. <laughs> well, there may come uh, come a day where uh, I'll put it into practice, but un until the Chinese invade our shores, I won't, or or you know any other tyrant along those lines, uh, foreign or domestic. Um, <clears throat> that's the verbiage. <laughs> I believe so. Um, all right, getting back on track. Uh, so plates. If, if someone was uh, completely brand, brand new to armor, which uh, a lot in our community are, um, it's become more and more popular for civilians. You know, it's, I've, I've got an AR, so now I need plates. Um, right. What would be your kind of, uh, I don't know, brand spanking new armor 101 kind of introduction to uh, plates? And, and, you know, these days, I think the answer to, to these questions is a lot simpler than it used to be. Um, That's always good. <laughs> M855 ammunition has become a lot more popular, and so have a, a wide variety of other threats that um, may not necessarily defeat certain types of armor, but led me to sort of shift my thinking um, away from my old attitude, which was that level 3++ was the right solution, right? Essentially a polymer plate with a thin ceramic uh, strike face. 
uh, designed to defeat, you know, M855 or 762 by 39 mild steel core. But um, more and more, I, I've really shifted my thinking to, to just say, you know, and recommend level four, um, mm. you know, because you've got different ammunition out there. M855A1, that's going to punch through uh, just about every three plus plus plate. Um, that alone um, was reason enough to shift my thinking. But, you know, you've got other ammunition along those same lines, the M80A1, the 308 variant of, of the same type. So, you know, with that in mind, I, I think level four is really, especially for for someone new to, to body armor, I think the quick and easy answer is, look, just get level four. Make sure that it's made in the USA by a reputable, reputable company. Um, NIJ uh, certified is is a, a, an absolute must, um, especially when it comes to level four, because the the requirements are are pretty stringent. And um, you know, so to that end, that's really what I would recommend for anybody. You know, I can take a, a ten minute phone call and explain uh, to a customer everything they need to know everything from 3a which is rated only for pistols to level three which is rated against all the ball ammo variants of, uh, you know five five six seven six two by 39 or uh, 308 um, moving from there you got what's called three plus now the industry uh, on the retail side typically just stops at three plus but on the manufacturing side we break it down to three plus and three plus plus so three plus would be an all polymer plate uh, that would stop all the ball variants plus the 762 by 39 mild steel core. All right, that's pretty common now given the uh, technology that's gone into polymer armors. That's an easy thing to do uh, with it, with those type of materials. If you want to stop M855, you jump into a 3 plus plus, right? There's the extra plus. Um, but again, you know, if, if you're out there looking for armor, the simple solution is just go level four. Uh, look for something that's relatively light. If you're if you're looking at you know a ten by twelve plate um, or something right around there, say a small or a medium, you want to find something that's under eight pounds, right? right. So I, I've got a good solution that's a ten by twelve triple curve swimmer plate, uh, level four, multi hit. Uh, now I have to be careful when I say multi hit because the factory doesn't like me saying multi hit against thirty out six AP even though we've tested it against that and it's successfully stopped two and probably could have stopped more. But uh, mm. they, they want me to to delineate that. For in, legal in, reasons. It, right. <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's just because with 30-06 AP, just about anything can happen. Um, yeah. it, it's a powerful round, and um, they just want to be careful that, that I word things in a way that meets with, with their approval. So, fine. We, we call it multi-hit, and then when it comes to 30-06 AP, you know, we just say, look, one hit technically but you know then again there's a video on my instagram showing it take two very easily but um that being the case one hit you know, or more it probably could have stopped more and i probably should have. that was the thought i had yesterday when i was looking at it i thought i should have hit it again <laughs> just torture, torture test. just keep going until it breaks right i'd right. see what happens throw a grenade uh, at that shit well, you know, and that's where some of the, the backyard tests start to get a little goofy, right? Which is why I don't like to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, I'll post a video that somebody does, like I did the other day, of an outdoor test. But the problem with, with all these weird tests that you see online, you know, uh, whether it's got balloons or whatever. I mean, it, these things are completely unscientific. 
the only way to really get any genuine results is to test the thing in an NIJ certified lab. That's that's what I like and, about your videos. I mean, it's a completely controlled environment. You can tell there's no you know nonsense going on. Right, right. You know, and and with all of the videos that that I see out there that are conducted outside of the lab, there's there's always some flaw in the methodology. Um, you know, I, I see shooting at, at plates at close range and in a closed room, and I think, does that guy know that he's breathing lead dust? Probably not ever considered that when, when you're shooting a plate from 10 feet away in a closed room, you're breathing lead dust. And before long, you're going to start getting kooky. So maybe that's where some of that comes from. I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, you know, in every case, when I see these backyard tests, there's always a flaw in the methodology. And, and as a result, it ends up being very misleading. Right. You know, if you're shooting steel. Okay, well, what type of steel, what type of round, how many grains, what velocity? There's things that are not being accounted for. And, you know, are they using light loads? What are they doing? Um, just because the round is a given caliber doesn't mean that it has the same velocity, which yeah. is why we, we test it according to velocity. We measure the velocity. And, um, it, it, you know, again, it's, it's fun to shoot a plate, let's be honest. You know, uh, tape it to a tree and shoot it. That, that's always fun. But the first thing you should do when, when you're setting up a plate for a test is you got to have some kind of backer behind it uh, to simulate the human body, the way that the thing is designed to be worn and used. And, and the, you know, so when you set it... So ask for a volunteer. Plate, no, that's the last thing you want to do. <laughs> but, you know, there's no shortage of volunteers, I can assure you. Uh, what? <laughs> but, you know, the problem is when you, when you just lean a plate up against a wall and shoot it, you're not getting a genuine result because you're not testing it under real world conditions, which is why in the lab we mount it to a clay backer and not a, not just any clay backer, clay backer that has a specific temperature to maintain the right pliability to properly simulate the human body and therefore measure results accordingly. Right. So, so um, again, and, and that's it's, to it's measure like impact trauma and stuff. That's right. right. Back face deformation in particular, right? So when you strike a plate, uh, the, the ceramic or whatever the material is, uh, and let's use ceramic as an example, it'll fragment the round and the polymer backer is designed to catch it. Well, that'll form a dimple on the back. On impact, that dimple might be more than it is after it settles. And so the uh, appropriate standard there is to measure that back face deformation. The clay, obviously, once you move it, it holds that position which allows you to then uh, measure that back face deformation with caliper. Because it might so, stop the round, but it also might still break ribs or, or something like that. Anything greater than 44 millimeter back face deformation is considered by the National Institute of Justice, the NIJ, to be lethal. Damn. Whether or not it is, in fact, lethal is debatable, um, but that is the standard they use. How many, how many PSR? 44 millimeters. Back face deformation. So okay. it's like half, two. It's like two inches, isn't it? I don't know. It's a little twenty-five millimeters less than an inch. So yeah, I don't know. I've got calipers around here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I think it's right. just under two inches. It's, it's like one and seven eighths or something. That's that's about right. Yes. That's a, a, that's a decent amount of deformation, though. Oh, it is. Yeah, you know, um, it's momentary, but but it still. Um, you pop your sternum two inches in, it's 
still gonna fuck yeah, you up. It's not gonna feel good. I, I've yeah. never been shot, but I've heard it feels like getting hit <laughs> with a ball peen hammer in the chest. Now, that's more soft armor. Hard armor. You take the same material in a soft configuration or in a hard configuration, and you're going to get better performance out of the hard for a number of reasons. When you consolidate the plies and you form a hard plate, number one, you're going to mitigate that back face deformation considerably. You're going to also distribute the force of the impact, the blunt force impact trauma. The hard plate is going to distribute it over a larger area, whereas the soft is going to just tend to give in at the point of impact. Okay. That makes sense. Sure. You know, so really, you you want hard plate. I, you know, even for for guys running around wearing three A vests, you know, for whatever job they're um, pointless. You might as well just uh, switch up to a, a hard plate of the same level, right? So even three A. Um, I've got those, and they're relatively inexpensive, like one hundred thirty bucks a piece, mm. and they will do a much better job of protecting you than any soft armor ever could. So, so I guess soft arm, soft armor is more probably for uh, I don't know close protection kind of jobs. You know, people who have to look like they're not wearing armor. I guess like you should only wear it if that's your only option. Is what you're saying? You know, the the interesting thing about that though is that I recently designed a, a shirt which is almost done with production. Um, it's basically a spandex tight fitting compression shirt, spandex um, with a couple pockets in it. Right? So you can drop it plates into it you can throw a you know a shirt over top of it and, and no one would ever know that you're wearing it you know maybe it'd imprint depending on what you're wearing but you know throw a windbreaker on and and it's completely concealed oh nice that's a that's a considerable step up from uh the fast suits that uh <laughs> soft body right. often looks like so i'm pretty sure that guy's wearing a vest and it's probably yeah, gonna do much good <laughs> michelin man kind of thing right yeah yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. Real stealthy, that guy. Uh. You know, and in my opinion, you know, being able to conceal armor is uh, a valuable asset, right? Maybe it's not right for every scenario, but um, it, it certainly has its time and place. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, to that end, I made the shirt. I've also made the, the road carrier that is designed to be concealable. Uh, but in that case, it'll hold, uh, you know, rifle rated plates. Uh, of any given weight so um that's the benefit of something like that yeah so do you need uh pads behind the polymer plates you do not no um some of the plates have padding built into them to mitigate uh blunt force impact trauma but you do not need them as long as you have what's referred to as a uh, standalone plate and that is just like it sounds right it does its job alone uh there are some systems uh, although fewer and fewer in number as, as technology develops. But in the past, you had what would be called an ICW plate or in conjunction with, and it was designed to be worn over a soft armor uh, vest of some sort, right? So the two work in combination, in conjunction. But you really don't want any of that. You, you, don't, you know, steer away from the extra weight and the extra bulk and all the nonsense. You know, if somebody's out there looking to get armor, um, you know, okay, we've already touched on this. Just get a, a level four plate appropriate to your size. If you want a sappy plate, that's kind of that standard cut with a 45 degree, you know, a dog ear at the top, a swimmer plate. It's just exaggerated a little bit more to allow for a greater range of motion. Um, but one of those two types of plates, ideally in a triple curve, and you heard me say that word before, but I didn't really define it. Um, so take a steel plate for it, for instance, and I, I know there's exceptions to this, but by and large, they are either flat 
which is a nightmare, or um, single curve. And by that, I mean left to right. And, and sure, that fits pretty good. Um, but a, a double curve or a triple curve is just like it sounds, right? In the geometry, in the, in the program, when you're designing these things, you can configure it according to different geometric reference points like curves, right? So um, you might have a wider curve at the top of the chest and, uh, you know, a, a smaller curve, essentially a, a smaller diameter to the radius that you're creating, um, to the, the curvature that you're creating, um, that defines the geometry of the plate and, and allows it to hold the uh, the contours of the body better, right? And the ergonomics of it, as you mentioned earlier. Um, so, you know, essentially just like it sounds, single curve, uh, okay, fine. Uh, that'll work, especially on the back. Um, double curve, even better. Triple curve really tends to uh, contour uh, the to the body a, a lot better. It really fits the body uh, that much more accurately and allows for well, when you do that, when you distribute the weight over the body more evenly, the, the natural result is feeling less of that wear stress. And that's the, uh, the, the verbiage that we use in the industry, right? Wear stress. Um, the guy that's carrying a 90-pound ruck, you know, he's got a lot of wear stress. You can mitigate that by way of mimicking the contour of the human body. Uh, getting the plates to fit more appropriately, and, and this, uh, such as is the case with the shoulder plates, right? I mean, those match the contour of the body so well, and they're so light that you literally forget you're wearing them after a couple of minutes. I was gonna say, how how heavy are they? They're like something insane. Like, is it three pounds? I wanna. No, they're they're a pound. Really? Uh, a pound. A pound and well, one point four pounds uh, for the heaviest version. That's the three plus plus version that has the ceramic strike face. Damn. Uh, so they, they are very light. The 3A shoulder plates that I have are a half pound each. You know, that's very easy to forget about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's held in position properly. You're, you're hardly going to notice it. Yeah, some people wear more uh, more jewelry than that. So, uh... <laughs> right. I have a set of flat plates and it feels like a... I don't know. It's it's like hard to breathe. Feels like a feels like you're getting beat up. Boa constrictor. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's like a piece of plywood on your chest or something. It's it's certainly not you know shaped to the human body. It's not going to match your contours yeah. or That's feel so. very good as a result. All, all of that impact is going to be positioned at one point, right? You know, maybe uh, maybe a couple of points, but it's not going to distribute itself well over the body like a double or triple curve plate would if you're moving around like your extremities are always hitting those sharp corners i mean they might not be sharp but it sure feels like that the 30th time you've hit it on an yeah. eight mile hike <laughs> that's true yeah no absolutely you you definitely want um to do everything you can to mitigate that wear stress to allow the plate or the the plate system to to better work in conjunction with the body not just in a standing position you know but also uh, as you move and, and walk or run whatever it is you're doing you want that system to move in conjunction with your body and having geometry that matches the contours of the human body is critical to that end moving away from ergonomics uh, something that a lot of people uh, a lot of newbies will see when they're looking at um, you know 
all various uh, armor companies is uh, steel versus ceramic. And then um, after that, they see uh, shelf life on ceramic. So is that something we could quickly go over? Yeah, so, okay. Quick disclaimer. Uh, the plates that we sell have a five-year manufacturer's warranty, but that's more of an insurance requirement. The, the plates are certainly good for far longer. The plates in, in my most recent test videos were 10 years old, mm. and, and they performed as well as they would on day one. Oh, now, I, I haven't been around long enough to tell you how long these things would last. Decades, certainly. You know, if, if properly stored, you know, you, you don't want to leave it out in, in the weather and in the sun and everything else. Um, uh, and, and I've had people ask me, well, you know, if I put it in my trunk, is that okay? Yes, it is. That's fine, especially with a polymer ceramic plate. Um, it, it used to be that polymer plates had a bit of an issue with delamination under extreme circumstances, but a lot of that has been improved on just by way of uh, advancements in materials and production methodologies, that sort of thing. Nice. Uh, so uh, something I've heard is uh, someone mentioned having your ceramics x-rayed, which is uh, yes. an interesting one. And, and not something uh, everyone's going to be able to run down to the doc's office and uh, have them take care of. Right. So, so LTC has an x-ray machine at their facility. And when we shot that level four plate, we put it in the x-ray machine and we took a look at it and we could see what it was doing. Um, and we did the same after the second shot and they use that in their drop test. So in the other question people have about ceramics is, well, gosh, will it break? You know, because in the old days that was more of an issue. Um, LTC uses some proprietary techniques where they infuse uh, ballistic fibers within the ceramic itself. And what that does is help to uh, number one, reinforce the, the structure of the materials, which even the materials themselves, the core materials, have been improved on greatly. But when you put the uh, ballistic fibers in uh, within the, uh, uh, the, the, the ceramic itself, you know, you reinforce it considerably. And, and the other thing that that does is it mitigates fracturing on impact. And I'll give you an example. I had a shoulder plate, a 3++ plus plus shoulder plate. And it had a very, you know, it's got a very thin ceramic breaker plate on it, just over an eighth of an inch thick. And we hit this thing four times with M855. And, and I've actually got a high speed slow motion video I've posted in the past about this. Maybe I'll post it again after this. Um, we hit it four times with M855 in the lab. And afterwards, I took it, uh, took it apart. I pulled the polymer off the ceramic backer just to get a good look at what was happening with the fracturing. And all of the, the fractures were contained in an area uh, with a diameter no bigger than, you know, somewhere between a quarter and a, and a half dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So very small uh, fracturing, very well contained. And um, this thing had four holes in it. And I already told you it was, it's very thin. I can set this thing on the ground. And I've done this 50 times. I weigh 225 pounds. I can stand on this thing, and it, even with four holes in it, no cracking, no breaking, no, no, no anything, right? It doesn't even make a, a cracking sound. Um, so, you know, the ceramics these days are, are very resilient. LTC takes it to a whole nother level. Uh, the drop test is configured with a, with a swing arm um, that's, you know, about six feet high. Uh, they mount the plate to the face of it. They put a 10-pound weight behind it, and they let it fall to the ground. And I believe the NIJ test requires two drops. LTC tests theirs internally with 10. 
So everything they do, they push way over the requirement. And that's why I like working with them so much, because not only are they good people to work with and they help me in a lot of different ways. We help each other. Um, but they really genuinely do make, without question, the best product out there. They are widely recognized as the world's largest and most respected armor manufacturer. And, and that's why it's so important to know where it's coming from, because, you know, I'll tell you what, there's been more than one company that's gotten in trouble selling Chinese stuff, slapping a fake label on it. <laughs> it was some company, I forget who it was, but they sold it to, I don't know if it was cops or the feds or the military. They, they sold it to somebody that they really shouldn't have. They, they shouldn't be selling that to anybody. And again, why that's why it's so important to know where it's coming from, who's making it. And, you know, where they're making it, what they're making it out of and to what standard. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it that, you know, for a lot of people, the easy solution is, look, just buy an LTC plate. I don't even care if you buy it from me. Just buy it from somebody. Make sure you get something real and genuine um, that's going to hold up for decades. And, yeah. and that's why LTC is is really the, the top choice. Whether you buy it from me or not, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I, I do this primarily to provide protection to the American people, and soon, hopefully, the Canadian people. I'm looking oh, uh, to expand Canada. Nice. Didn't, didn't know they could even have body armor. <laughs> I know. Well, apparently they can. I, I've been talking to some attorneys up there and um, trying to get things in motion. The, the hardest part is, you know, I want to get them level four, but it's international, so it falls under ITAR regulations. Mm -hmm. uh, but if done properly, there's something called the Warehouse and Distribution Agreement, that I can establish up there that essentially creates like a TSA fast check portal for ITAR regulated items. So uh, we're looking into that and we are looking to uh, absolutely provide to every single Canadian that wants this stuff. You know, I live in Montana, Canada's 60 miles from me. These people are my neighbors. Oh, and, yeah. you know, oddly enough, I, especially in the last six months or so, I've been contacted by people not just in Montana, not just all over the country, but really all over the world. Uh, and that's what kind of blows me away about, you know, uh, what's what's going on with everything these days is that um, it's really getting global attention. And I don't know if that's because I, you know, supported Hong Kong the way that I did. Uh, certainly that's why some of the people there uh, have reached out to me. Um, but, you know, Australia, Germany. Um, Spain, you name it. I've got people reaching out to me from all over the world, and I'm limited in, in a lot of ways on what I can provide for them. Uh, the Bureau of Industry and Security regulates what I can or can't do with anything short of level four. As I mentioned, anything level four um, falls under ITAR. All of these are things that one has to be very careful about um, in doing or attempting to do any kind of international transaction, which is why I've got attorneys and everything else working with me to set up Canada. But eventually, I would very much like to be bringing level four plates by the truckload up to Canada and uh, doing those people a great service in the process, I think. Right on. I, it's interesting you say uh, international because I actually had at least four or five questions uh, asking about shipping to the UK because evidently I've got a fair few UK followers. And um, I, I was pretty sure the UK had a completely outlawed body armor, but I just was uh, searching it up just a minute ago, and apparently it's not. Have you ever had any uh, inquiries from the UK? I've had in inquiries. I've never done any business with anyone in, in the UK. Mm. Um, so I am unaware of the extent to which those laws apply. Yeah, me, me too. It's, uh... I, I don't know. It's certainly, 
something to be very mindful of before you attempt to do business in another country. Um, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> they will uh, mess you up several ways of Sunday. <laughs> and I'm in with good reason, right? We don't want to supply this to the wrong people. You know, I wouldn't want this getting in the hands of, uh, you know, enemy combatants anywhere in the world. So uh, certainly something to be very mindful of. Uh, oh, so last thing on um, the types of body armor. Uh, so, hold on, hold on. Speaking of enemy combatants, mm-hmm. how uh, how has the zero boots licked? Uh, oh, yes. Campaign worked for you. Well, you know, man, it's funny because I did that just to be me, right? Um, that just felt like the natural response to everything that took place with the shooting in Florida, the UPS shooting. Let's talk about that. The absolute shit show. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Probably the worst thing I've ever seen cops do ever. Um, you know, and it started with at midnight, right before I go to bed, I put up an Instagram post, a picture of the scene, and I say, um, I take issue with police using civilian vehicles for cover. And I woke up in the morning to an absolute flood of messages from angry police. (laughs) And I really couldn't understand it because clearly they were at fault. So what are you doing? Right. You would really defend that, man. Yeah, you would really hope cops would call out their fellow officers for, uh, well, (laughs) crap tactics at uh, the lightest. The fact that they were going after you... They Just were for commenting on it. For saying That's that right. we shouldn't use humans as shields is, <laughs> speaks volumes. Well, and so what they did is they started hitting me with a lot of one star reviews on Facebook. You know, a really petty ploy. Um, <laughs> That's petty as well. You mean the cops really were petty? petty? What? Yeah, go figure. <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, and that obviously is a bigger problem that we can talk about a little bit more. But just to tell the story. Um, so I wake up to this, you know, storm of angry messages and one-star reviews, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to double down. You know, what have I got to lose? I'm, I'm just going to tell it like it is. So I've put up another post, uh, and I think it said something to the effect of, you know, more proof that you know, this demonstrates the growing police state, uh, something to that effect. And, and boy, did that ever crank up the heat, right? So then <laughs> and the Drug Enforcement Cops Facebook page. Uh, takes a screenshot of my post, and they post it on their page with the comment, let's show Hoplite Armor what a police state really is. Oh, my God. God. I remember that. Can you believe it? Yeah. I just about, I mean, you don't know how happy that made me, right? Because I thought, oh, now I get to dig into these guys even harder, right? So at that point in my mind, I said, all right, I'm going all in. You know, my second attempt, I'm doubling down. This time, you know what? I'm going all in. Uh, All my chips are on the The moral high ground. (laughs) <laughs> and and quite honestly, I thought it could be the end of my business. I thought, you know, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to stand my ground against the stuff that I think is just inherently wrong. And I'm going to speak my mind and, and nothing's going to ever prevent me from doing that. So I, I went all in and I called them out <laughs> and I, I reposted their post. And I got to tell you, I was amazed at, at the public support and... um you know, I ended up writing a, a document, you know, that kind of outlined where I where I stand on this stuff, right? Because I had cops calling me up and yelling at me and threatening my life and accusing me. One guy told me that I was responsible for every police death that had ever occurred. And I thought, well, that's about the dumbest damn thing I ever heard in my life. But, you know, if that's how you want to feel, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think I may have called him a redcoat a couple times. But other than that, right. Yeah. 
So, you know, I, I don't take kindly to threats. I don't back down. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm doing this all alone. I've got 90% of the cops, at least it feels like, in the country uh, mad at me. And some percentage of them wants to kill me. Uh, <laughs> luckily, my next door neighbor is the newly elected county sheriff. And he's a constitutional sheriff. He's a good man. And um, he and I had had conversations a couple weeks prior about uh, red flag laws. And he had told me that not he nor any county sheriff in the state of Montana would ever enforce any red flag law. And I'm quite certain that there was an attempt or two made to red flag me. Uh, mm -hmm. But they were, of course, successful. Um, you know, my neighbor um, in Montana, that means something. You know, when it snows and he's stuck, I'm over there with my tractor, you know, digging him out um, or, or plowing his driveway before it even gets bad, you know, and, and the same for him, you know, last year, my arm was injured. Um, and, and I wake up to, to a sound on my porch and I look out and his two boys are out there shoveling my walkway for me. You know, I mean, that's how it is up here. People genuinely care about each other. They care about what's right and they value the constitution above all else. And, um, that's really something to, uh, really be respected in today's world, especially. I mean, I, I think that's a universal truth that goes back to the dawn of time that we look out for each other. And, and it's something that sadly we, we've lost sight of. And that kind of brings me to the, the state of the nation with regards to a lot of police, in particular police in the big cities. And, you know, a lot of this came about as a result of my years of experience in dealing with everybody with regards to armor. Um, I had a police officer in uh, Chicago. He was a SWAT cop, and I was out there dealing with him, oddly enough, on the flashbang grenade. And in the course of our conversation, he told me once how during a raid, they threw a flashbang grenade through a window. It landed in a crib. It maimed oh. the baby. But in his words, it's okay. We got out of it with a little creative writing. Oh, and I thought, my Christ. God, that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. And, and it certainly was one of them. Uh, another interesting thing I heard from, uh, oddly enough, another cop in Chicago, this probably is giving us some indication of, of what's happening there. Uh, this guy, you know, he was getting real friendly with me on the phone and he felt very comfortable. And, and he says, oh, you should join us for some of our poker games. You know, we, we get uh, hookers and coke. And I thought, and I said, what, you know, what are you talking about? And he says, oh, don't worry, the, the coke's for the hookers. And I thought, oh, well, you know what? I don't really care what you do, you know, but if you're going to go out and arrest people for the same thing you're doing, the on the same weekend, shit, there is an inherent problem that needs to be dealt with. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it doesn't take more than a couple days to see the next uh, video of police abuse anymore. I mean, this has become so common that I think it's like routine procedure for a lot of these guys. And, and you know, look, it happens. We, we've seen examples of this in various sociological experiments, right, where, uh, you know, take, for ex example, the, I, I forget what the experiment was called. I think it was maybe Stanford, a Harvard study. Stanford prison. Stanford, Stanford, Stanford the prison. Other Ivy League school. Right. So you know the one, right? You know, you give these guys power over somebody else, and before long, they're abusing it. And unfortunately, that really seems to be the case in modern America, where uh, a lot of our officers have lost sight of their oath right, to defend the Constitution. Well, what does that mean? You know, I think they say these words without giving much consideration to it. But um, first and foremost, it's everyone's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And anything that someone might do to disrupt that, in my opinion, is, is 
at the very least getting dangerously close to violating the constitutional rights of an individual, especially when it's a state-sanctioned uh, agency that's doing it. And, and it has become all too common. And that's certainly something that I take great issue with. Right. And that's where the absolutist um, thing, uh, absolutist stances come into play because it's like, well, any cop that's going to enforce these unconstitutional gun laws is an oath breaker. But then you say, well, what are the unconstitutional gun laws? And we're like, well, I mean, all of them. If all you just, of them. Yeah. If you just read the words, you know, all like, of them. yeah, that's all of them. Yes. And, and so that kind of leads well into what I'm trying to do now, right? Um, run for governor. And why am I trying to do that? Well, I, I think we've been talking about it this whole time without saying it. Um, look at what's happening all across the country. It started in Virginia. You've got things happening in Washington and even Arizona, you know, Florida, Georgia, you name it. Every state seems to be popping up with, with you know, wh whether it's red flag laws. Right. And, and let's let's talk about that for a second. What is a red flag law? OK, so a guy exercises his First Amendment right to free speech. So we're going to violate his Fourth Amendment right to privacy and bust in his door uh, because uh, and take away his Second Amendment right to bear arms. As a result, this is a, a slippery uh, into absolutely losing our foothold on freedom. Go ahead. Oh, um, I mean, the, the whole thing, yeah. I, you, you have these people who swear to uphold the uh, the law of the land, and uh, <laughs> they're right. violating the very core of it. And um, That's very true. For a living. Now, one thing you guys will like. Okay, back in 2009, Montana passed something called the Montana Firearms Freedom Act. And essentially what that said is that any firearm made in the state, sold in the state, and kept in the state is outside of the control or jurisdiction of Congress – um, who uh, attempts to do these things by way of the, the 10th Amendment, giving them uh, control over interstate trade. Well, we're not talking interstate. This is uh, within the state. And so effectively, the Montana Firearms Freedom Act nullified the NFA. Uh, but Governor Schweitzer uh, was afraid to do so. He was afraid to ratify it based on um, pressure he was getting from the ATF and threats from the federal government to cut state funding. Uh, Bullock didn't even touch it. And I can tell you this day one, that would be the first thing I would do ratify the Montana firearms freedom act and nullify the NFA. Right. On. We've got yes. other ways that we can generate resources for the state. Um, and I've got some plans on that, that I have yet to, to really make public, but things that will allow Montana to stand on its own two feet financially outside of the control of the federal government. That's, and that's what as, like as a do. whole, if you guys quit paying the government federal taxes, you'll have a lot more money. When you guys <laughs> aren't paying for all that upkeep in Washington. Well, there's uh, there's so much to that that I, I, I don't think it's something I want to dig into in depth at the moment. But there is uh, a lot of ways that we can absolutely establish Montana as a financial stronghold. Uh, through which we can begin to determine our own fate and control our own destiny. Um, you know, my biggest concern with the federal government is, financially speaking, it's a house of cards, and eventually that house of cards is going to fall. And it's like a uh, what's right going to happen? Think about what's going to happen to a lot of little families out there that are dependent on some sort of subsidy, or uh, old people that uh, are living off of uh, social security income. Uh, or, or the disabled, you name it, the list goes on and on. And, you know, when the 
inevitable happens and that house of cards does come crashing down it's it's going to be the people that are stuck holding the bag not not the politicians who are going to sit in their cushy bunkers uh, and wait out any kind of disaster um, it's going to be the people and, and i think about all the in particular right the the women and the children um, you know, the elderly, too, the most vulnerable parts of our society are going to take the brunt of any sort of disruption in normal function. And, and that is a real problem. And that's something that needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. Absolutely. I mean, a state like Montana, you can't have uh, someone unable to pay the heating bill. You know? It's the same thing that happens in England. People, uh, people genuinely die because they can't, they can't keep the heat on, like old people, the disabled and such. Yes. Um, yeah. When, yeah, uh, it's, when, it's very when, unfortunate, and a lot of people don't like to face those sorts of facts. They'd rather sweep it under the rug and, and pretend that everything's okay, but um, I think if you just take an uh, open-minded uh, uh, view of what's going on around you, it's not too hard to connect the dots and realize that, that we, we are very vulnerable as a society. You know, you just look at the power grid alone. It's been said that if... Uh, uh, an enemy were to detonate a uh, nuclear warhead of sufficient size over, say, the, the middle of the United States, that it would uh, di disrupt and destroy the power grid for most of the country, resulting in, and, and this is based on a study I read, but resulting in a, a death of, I believe they said, 90-some-odd percent of the population within a year's time. Oh, so we are very vulnerable, and if we don't take action... And it has to go to the point of action. It can't be talk any longer. We really need to take action to put certain barriers in place to protect our people uh, against, again, what is, in my estimation, the inevitable. Right on. Um, so, I mean, how far would you go if uh, if the federal government uh, wasn't playing ball? So we have... Um... We have various states, uh, like the proposed state of Jefferson and uh, Appalachia. Um, various people talking about um, potentially seceding if the federal government, you know, really uh, is kind of pushing it towards, um, as we saw in Virginia, kind of uh, a civil war kind of scenario, you know, to, not to be dramatic, okay. but it's, it's getting tense. And uh, how far would you go um, faced with those kind of situations? So I, I'm going to respond to that question. <laughs> the way that every president I can remember has responded to a threat by saying that all options are on the table. I dig it. <laughs> all options. So, um, so whatever that might be, whether it's secession or uh, something more extreme, you know, one needs to react to the circumstance uh, accordingly. Uh, we're not there now, so my hope Hello. is... Well... <laughs> That's 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 the word going around, of course. Right. And um, it's my hope. Right. That we can avoid that sort of thing. There was a book written by when, a man. When do we called, when do we when do we get there when we recognize that? Right. Uh, if, if I yeah, tell you to execute order 66, mm -hmm. you know what to do. No, I'm just saying, like, when do we get there when we recognize that the enforcement, the enforcement, you know, arm of, of you know, the enforcement branch has violated their oath. The, well, basically I, I, every well, every politician is violating their oath. Um, like when when do we when do we get there? Like, I, look, we get we're, there? we're we're already there, but here's the solution. <laughs> all right, there's a book written by a man uh, named Gene Sharp. It's called How to Start a Revolution, 
And these are the, the uh, approaches that he outlines were utilized in Kosovo, whenever it was in the late 80s, maybe it was in 90s. Um, so they, they, there's a book, but there's also a documentary. And I watched the documentary. And in that, there's a colonel that we sent over there to, to put these things in place. And, and he explains it like this. He holds a book in his outstretched hand, right, on his fingers. And he says, my fingers represent the pillars of society, right? Military, police, education, healthcare, you name it. Um, and, and the book on his fingers represents society. And, and he makes the point that if you destroy the pillars of society, what happens? That book comes falling down. And with it, society. And and then again, we're talking about the most vulnerable in society and uh, and, and the inevitable result on them. And, and that's what we need to avoid. And so he makes the point, rather than destroying the pillars of society, what you need to do is transfer that that society to, to new and strong pillars based on the ideals uh, of, of the people. Uh, and so, you know, in so doing, he transfers the book to the other hand is to create a visual. And it makes a lot of sense. Because, um, you know, if we're going to boogaloo, well, guess what? You know, um, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. And, and that's something we really need to consider. Um, all options are always on the table. And uh, if it ever comes to that, I'll be the first one telling you what to do. But let's hope we don't get there because there, there's too much at stake. Oh, no. We're, we're, all, we're all about, uh Yeah. The bloodshed my, is my uh, about, horrific. We're all about peaceful resolution, but you know, like mm -hmm. the saying about the difference between peace being peaceful and uh, I guess you have to be able to be dangerous in order to be considered peaceful. Sure, I, I'm yeah. familiar with that, and and you're right. And it's just you the know, preparation I, too, because really, the whole government they might have separate pillars, but if one of those pillars crumble, the rest of the structure really isn't strong enough to hold up society that's a very good point and so, not to mention the pillars are crumbling anyway like yeah they are, it's, they are. maybe it's not even a boogaloo out. so much run by the people but because of the collapse of government that causes some game huge gang activities yeah. or right that that's, that's exactly the concern and my hope with running for governor is not just to win and to protect Montana, but to set an example to other people in other states to do the same thing, uh, whether it be running for governor or running for mayor or city council. We need people that understand the value of the Constitution and the importance of our foundational laws to take the seats of power at every level. We need that desperately. It's really our only hope long term. You know, um, you can burn everything to the ground, but in the end, you're just left with ashes. And we've got too much at stake. You know, look at what we've built uh, in this nation. You know, something that the world really has never seen. And, and we're not perfect, uh, but it's a good foundation to build on. And, and what we need to do is clear away some of that debris, some of these rotten pillars, replace them uh, with reinforced structures, so to speak. Uh, and we do that by electing people that adhere to and believe in the Constitution of the United States. So um, what's your, uh, when it comes down to it, what's your uh, opinion on the federal government? Do you think that's a sustainable thing or do you think we should be getting down to a more states, state rights kind of level? Because that's kind of well, what I'm, kind of what I'm getting from yes. your platform. Uh, you, you should be getting that loud and clear. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, 
Gotcha. And, and, you know, let's talk about the federal government for a minute. Let's focus on the Federal <laughs> Reserve, right, which is not part of the federal government, even though they give us every indication that they are. Uh, the federal government is, in fact, run by central banks and through a long series of paperwork is essentially privately owned. Um, unconstitutionally, they uh, collect our taxes and lend money to our government. And that is a direct violation uh, of the standard by which we are to operate, where Congress is the one that is supposed to be issuing currency, uh, not a central bank. I mean, we, we saw that go and uh, go and arrive right after the Civil War with, uh, what was it? Um, not, not, not union notes. They were, uh, damn it. Whatever they were. Um, Federalist papers? Something like mm, should have brought it up if I can't remember the name. I just listened to uh, Matt from the Status Quo's podcast talking about them oh, not being yeah. able to pay uh, revolutionary uh, soldiers. Um, I listened to that the other day. I can't remember what it was called, though. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bad historian. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it's all... <clears throat> it. A lot of people are predicting it's kind of kind of coming to a close. And um, what you're talking about with um, kind of making sure Montana is uh, it can stand on its own two feet, I guess, uh, before it's part of a union. Is that kind of like the, the angle? Well, um, I, I'm not sure I understand the question, to be honest with you. L like, uh, so is your uh, your aim to make Montana its own um self-sustaining entity within the u.s like where rather than being reliant on federal funds which is often what they uh the first thing they threaten Correct. when you uh the first thing they try to pull yeah exactly the first card yeah yeah well and so you know whether or not montana secedes i personally would prefer not uh what i would really like to see is the restoration of uh uh, right-minded thinking and laws being uh, re-established all across the country. Um, that's, that's the best thing I could hope for. Uh, gotcha. You know, again, all options are on the table, right? You know, there, there may come a point in time where the people of Montana decide they've had enough. And, you know, if that's the case, I will assist them in whatever it is that they seek to do. Um, you know, I, I said something the other night that I, I really liked. I thought it came out well. You know, I was talking to my wife about all this stuff. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm not running for governor so that I can tell people what to do, but rather so I can tell government what not to do. And, and I think that really kind of sums up everything I'm talking about, right? The will of the people is what we should be uh, looking to uh, to satisfy. And, you know, uh, so the boogle, we got a lot of young people that are really upset. They recognize that their future is being stolen out from under their noses and that their hands are tied. There's very little they can do through... Uh, you know, the normal channels that were established by the founding fathers, whether it's voter fraud or, you know, illegal immigrants being brought in to act as a voter base for the Democrats or the Federal Reserve or the list goes on and on. And, uh, you know, I think it starts, I, I think fixing things begins by legitimizing the concerns of the people, right? These are legitimate concerns and, and they're being overlooked by a majority of those in power who act like leaders when, in the end, they are supposed to be representatives, uh, representing the will of the people, not enforcing and applying uh, unique rules to themselves, like take Congress, for example. They're allowed to do insider trading. We're not. Uh, their argument is that by default, 
their job will expose them to insider information and they shouldn't be uh, prevented from trading stocks. Well, that's how you get people who make $150,000 a year end up with $100 million. These people are using it for their own gain. And that's Absolutely. a big problem. Yep. <laughs> And so we begin by legitimizing the concerns of the people, you know, the, the people out there that are concerned about these things that are upset about these things and and can't see any other resolution other than, um, you know, initiating or, or responding to some sort of uh, civil war type scenario or revolution, however you want to word it. Um, I get where they're coming from. You know, who, I, I feel the same way. Who is um, your favorite? Well, you know, for a long time, I would have told you George Washington, because I, I share a birthday with him and growing up as a kid, you know, he's the guy, right? Uh, but then I found out about the Whiskey Rebellion, and I thought, you know, Thomas Jefferson is kind of cool. I I got a lot in common with that guy. And um, How would TJ handle this situation right now? <laughs> <laughs> Probably lots of ropes and guillotines, I would imagine, but, <laughs> you know, that was a different time. Uh, certainly seeing people uh, really I'm not able to really hear you very well and you're, 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 I, I can't hear you bud yeah your audio is getting worse and worse cramps. It's, it's like you downgraded I, I from like he said something to the effect of you know is, is it really a different time or are times so yeah. different yeah. that those yeah, standards really don't apply and you know I, I would answer that by saying you know if anything we've got more to lose you know there, there are a lot of people in this country that are dependent on the social structure that uh that we all operate in and, and, and it's getting... those again that's who i'm concerned about think of like all the single mothers with little kids how many you know what are, are they going to do with this fact how many of so, them are contributing to the problem well that's a very good point right through the welfare state and things of this nature but um you know it's it's hard for someone who's in a desperate position to refuse uh, an offer of help um so you know it, it's a tough thing to to really deal with uh and to solve but you know again it begins with legitimizing people's complaints and, and working towards solutions that actually address the problem and, and don't just circumvent it or otherwise disregard it yeah they'll yeah. they'll never be on our side pretty much if their problems are never solved in good, sustainable ways, and they will continue to go to that welfare state. Or if they're solved by the right. state, yeah. They're never yeah. going to be motivated so, to, to correct hopefully. the problem. Yeah, no, hopefully. Yeah, all, all good points. teach them you know, I mean, in and, those and times, is, you know? And it, none of these are easy problems to solve, but, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage in problem solving just by being a mechanical engineer. I mean, by default, that's what you do. You're a problem solver. And that's how I make my living is solving problems, whether it be uh, designing an armor system that, that works properly or figuring out how to fit all the guts inside of an electronic flashbang grenade, um, you know, or something bigger like solving uh, the issues that face a state. In the end, it's all just um, problem solving. Right. And, and I think really what we need to start to look for is problem solving approaches, answers that challenge conventional thinking. We, we have to really try to um, think of new and unique solutions to these problems. And there's a lot that I'll reveal when I, when I release my economic plan that goes into that in some detail. Uh, 
and uh, and I think it's there that we can find perhaps the core of our solution. You know, there, there's a couple of things that that I'm going to propose that are um, uh, very outside of. Uh, conventional thinking. You know, one of the things I'd like to do with Montana, I'd like to see us establish what I refer to as the MIA, the Montana Intelligence Agency. Not to look inward, like the Patriot Act does, but rather to look outward, um, to identify and assess any threats that might affect Montana or its citizens uh, now or in the future. And so what does that mean when I say looking outward? Well, looking at anyone and anything that is doing, saying, or working towards any end goal that might um, undermine uh, the sovereignty of Montana itself. And I believe that every state in and of itself is really a sovereign entity. And we touched on that a little bit, you know, when talking about Fed versus state. And, you know, in my opinion, the, the rule of law within a state, certainly first and foremost, uh, the U.S. Constitution. Second to that, the state constitution. And anything that, that that is contrary to those, um, you know, and I've seen it said there's there's a law that I can't quite properly quote, but um, any law that is repugnant to the Constitution is, is by default null and void. Gotcha. Um, my one concern with like a, an MIA might be uh, perhaps your administration would use it correctly uh, and as intended, but um, would you not fear perhaps a future, um, I don't know, say, like a Democrat takes over after you and is then like, oh, well, I'm now going to reinstruct the MIA to uh, focus on red flag laws because we've got all these dangerous uh, Montana gun owners who yeah. have NFA items and we're going to restore federal order in Montana. And we now have this, uh, this you know, uh, agency to help us in that. The, the way I would envision something like that would be, number one, uh, their responsibility would be to report these things to the people, directly to the people. Uh, whether by, you know, data dumps like WikiLeaks or, you know, through a, a formal publication. But, um, and I go into this a little bit more in, in some of my other documents that I haven't released, but essentially, you know, I'm looking to build a structure by which the state is controlled by the people solely. And, and, and in that way, some of these things are mitigated. Now, certainly uh, you can have, you know, actors crop up in the future that um, can undermine all manner of things that we put in place. Um, but the concerns that I'm really focusing on are, you know, corrupt politicians in D.C., um, you know, cartels, uh, maybe not just in Montana, but anywhere. Where are they? What are they doing? Uh, and, you know, how can we address this sort of thing? Um, I don't think that intelligence gathering by itself or in and of itself is a threat. It, it really has more to do with um the application of that intelligence gathering. And, you know, here's the way I look at it. Montana cannot make intelligent decisions for its future without real, timely, and accurate information. We simply need that. You know, the, the news is fake. Um, it's owned by conglomerates that are in bed with all of these different interests, and in no way, shape, or form are they acting on behalf of the people. So, you know, essentially what I'm talking about is... Um, uh, you, you might call it uh, intensive uh, investigative reporting more than anything, right? Because we're not talking about a law enforcement arm. We're talking about a, an intelligence gathering uh, method by which the people are given information by which they can help better determine their own destiny. So a state And I think if is? these things are set up, uh, well, I don't know if you call it state run. You know, I, I don't like the term state run anything, but... Um, 
you know, let's just call it real information. We, we need a source of real information and, and the people need access to that information. If they don't have it, how can they make any kind of decision with, with any sort of logic or reason? Gotcha. I, uh, I, I, I have my, my fears about uh, a central centralized source for uh, news, but... Well, you, you and I both have some of the same concerns, right? But in the end, it comes down to the simple fact that if the people don't have real information, all they have is lies. Well, I, I like to think that technology in itself is bringing us to that. I mean, look at what social media has done. Yeah, there's a lot of bad things that go along with it, but I think some of those stigmas are starting to be overcome. Just look at online dating. That's when it very first started, true. People thought it was the dumbest thing ever. Now most people, at least half of them, meet online. Social media has enabled the rapid transfer of information between yes. people like nothing else ever before, without question. Um, you know, and, and that is absolutely critical to... Uh, yeah. In line with that, I, I think um, keeping information decentralized rather than centralized is kind of that. There's no real agenda, like potentially ever attached. Like, of course, people have their own thing, but um, when you've got just information everywhere, uh, all sorts of people want to learn stuff. All sorts of people want to, you know, share what they know. Um, I think decentralized solutions are, like, by and large, always going to be uh, more effective than a centralized source in, in my I, And I've always said if I was a billionaire, I'd have my own CIA. I'd want to know what Nancy Pelosi is eating for breakfast and who she's talking to. Um, because these are the people that I'm greatly concerned about. I would love to have real information about what these people are doing. And, and really, what's the end goal? Bring them to justice. Because you know they're guilty of a thousand things. We need to bring them to justice, but we can't do it without the information, without the evidence. They're unless all guilty. They're all guilty. We well, you're, you're right about that, but unless we can prove it, you know, um, we're looking at a kangaroo court. You know, we're I better. Mean, their, oath, their, oath, their policies their alone. Their yeah, their oath of office, office is... their policies that go right. against the Constitution are oh, crimes amongst themselves. That. Now we just need... A judicial well, system that would actually do something about it. The problem well, is let, they're in bed with the people that are committing the crimes too. I was going to say, let alone the Constitution, it's their policies that go against natural rights that are the real issue. That's very true. Absolutely. And, and so what do we need? We need to restore uh, the Constitution in its purest form. Gotcha. Um, so, <clears throat> if we... Uh, we, we've been uh, keeping you quite a bit, but um, I think a good question to wrap up on would be, uh, so do you, would you have a, uh, I don't like putting people in boxes, but for the sake of our listeners, um, is there a particular label you would apply to yourself? Like, you know, constitutionalist? Uh, yes. What, you what, took the word right out of my mouth. Yes, constitutionalist, without question. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, um, I guess, advancing on that, um, are you running as a Republican, independent, libertarian? What are you working I, You with? know, I wanted to run as an independent. I, I, I could not um, justifiably associate myself with the Republicans and certainly not the Democrats. Um, I, I wanted to run as an independent, but I, I realized early on um, that that was going to hurt my chances and with it the chances of the people of Montana uh, getting a fair shake in this thing. So I, I, I was persuaded to um, run under the Libertarian Party 
And I had my my hesitation about that because there are some characters out there that don't do the party justice. But by and true, large, true of any group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the guy with the boot on his head in particular comes to mind. But you know, I, and I think what I can do there is I can bring a, a greater level of unity and and you know maybe uh, legitimacy in the eyes of the people to that party uh, by way of. Uh, policy and um, being outspoken to the effect that you know changes are actually made and, and good things come about. So I, I did go ahead and decide and, and run as a libertarian. Um, you know I, I can't necessarily say that that title uh, describes me as well as constitutionalist. That's certainly uh, a better description. Um, but I knew that I could get a, a fair amount of assistance from. Uh, from the Libertarian Party. So uh, to that end, uh, I felt like that was probably my best strategy. Well, I, I'd, say, I'd certainly say a constitutionalist is a lot closer than uh, what many other members of the party have amounted to. So uh, certainly a step in the right direction. Well, you know, and I'm figuring these things out as I go. I've never run for office and, gotcha. um, you know, it's certainly challenging, you know, even just a few days into it. Um, I filed my paperwork last Friday officially. I've been talking about this for some time, but it was made official on uh, February 21st. And, um, you know, so I'm new to it. And there's a lot going on, and it's very difficult to to navigate some of that. But I do have some good people there at my side that are, you know, working with me and helping guide me through it and, and really kind of clearing a path for me, making things easy. Um you know, I believe that there is wisdom in much counsel, right? That's a biblical proverb that that I think really um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, wisdom in much counsel. So I, I've sought the advice of a lot of different people. I don't necessarily take people's advice, but I want to know what they have to say. I want to know what other viewpoints are. And, and I want to, you know, always put myself in a position where when presented with overwhelming evidence, contrary to what I might have previously believed, that I would be open-minded enough to shift my way of thinking. And I think that's important. Oh, of course. Um, right. So uh, if, if you want to um, put out your, uh, your plugs, uh, your, web, your campaign website, your company, yourself on Instagram, uh, etc., well, okay, sure. You know, the campaign site is Lyman2020.com, L-Y-M-A-N, Lima Yankee, Mary Alpha November 2020.com. And um, I, I've posted some of the documents that uh, I've released on that site. You can find it under the campaign category. Uh, and there's some other things there, you know, merchandise and whatnot, you know, uh, shirts and hats and bumper stickers, all that sort of thing. Well, look at that. Uh, the, the armor website, as you know, hoplitearmor.com. Uh, Hotel Oscar Papa Lima India Tango Echo Armor.com, uh, named after the ancient Greek citizen soldiers to whom we owe the foundations our, of our republic. Awesome stuff. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on, man. No, happy to do it. Thank you for having me on. No worries. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, good luck. Thank you. Good luck. Much. You got appreciate my support. It. All right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for coming on. You got yeah. it. Anytime. Hopefully, we'll do it next year uh, in a victory lap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It'd be nice to have a governor on. That'd be cool. That would be a lot of fun, and I'd be happy to come back on if that were the case. One way or the other, um, I'm here to discuss whatever you like at any time. There if nothing go. else, we can have you back on for armor again. <laughs>
Well, yeah, it? why not? You know, I'll, I'll do some tests here in the near future, uh, some live stream tests with different steel plates, uh, demonstrating some of the issues in regards to that. So uh, keep your eye out for that sort of thing. Awesome, man. Sounds good. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Hey, guys. Have a good one.